Is there a potential that Russia is becoming a puppet government of China? That's a good question. Uh, and I don't think it's quite to that extent yet. I think it, it's more of a like the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation yep. with these two. That's the best way to understand the Russia-China relationship. China is nothing if not practical, okay? And they recognize the value in having Russia be a problem, you know, over in Europe and in the Black Sea. I mean, because you look, we have to devote resources there. Welcome, everybody, to the Angel Research Podcast. We are here, as usual today, to discuss the market's hottest stock stories and investment opportunities. Today, we're going to be talking about the aerospace and defense industry with the help of industry expert Jason Simpkins. Jason is the managing director of the investment advisories Wall Street Proving Grounds and Secret Stock Files, and he is here today to talk about the insane geopolitical landscape that we are experiencing. We're going to talk about Putin a little, we're going to talk about China, we're going to talk about weapons of war, and uh, maybe most importantly, we're going to talk about the stocks that Jason believes are going to benefit the most from this new age of conflict. Per our usual disclaimer, nothing that we say is uh, personal investment advice. Uh, We can give you uh, tools and insights to make great trading decisions, but we cannot make those trades for you. Also, please like, comment, and subscribe. The engagement really helps us out, guys. We love it. Uh, Mr. Simpkins, welcome to the show. It's good to have you back on. Um, we have a lot to talk about, but I, I just want to dive right into this with a hard-hitting question because I think there's some, there may be some ethical pessimists out there. Okay. What is your case, your ethical case, for investing in companies that make weapons of war? Oh, that's easy. Uh, first off, like they, it's a matter of security. It's a matter of, of national defense. It's a matter of safeguarding freedom. You know, people talk about you know. I guess kind of like defending the rights or the liberties with the right to bear arms or whatever. But without the U.S. military, uh, you know, there's not really a, a whole lot that that's, that's going to accomplish. You know, you can become ungovernable, <laughs> but if you really need to defend a society, you need a standing army. I think we're all kind of aware of that. Sure. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's that. And then you, you can really see it actually in, I think right now, Ukraine provides a really good example, too, of an external, like, power projection. You know, very few people are arguing. I can't say, sadly, nobody's arguing, but very few people are arguing that like Russia's invasion of Ukraine is in any way justified. Sure, it's a matter of an autocratic nation of uh, Vladimir Putin uh, trying to occupy, take over another country that has every right to exist and to its own identity and its own uh, form of government, which is democracy. And so, even though we're not participating in that war with troops, <clears throat> we are very much participating in it by sending them arms and weapons, and they've been extremely effective. And without them, there's no way that Ukraine would have had the kind of success that it's had right now. And I mean, all credit to its fighters and to its generals. They've, you know, put up a hell of a fight. Uh, they've been, you know, incredibly tough, incredibly brave. They, you know, they're, they're doing the, the heavy lifting. But without the arms that we've sent them, there's no way you see the kind of things that we've seen over the past few weeks, like we saw at the counteroffensive, them pushing back Russian forces past the Dnieper River, uh, you know, taking back large swaths of territory. That's that's because of the support we've given them. Sure. Uh, and so that's that for me. That's that's the case. Yeah, I think that's a pretty you know the <clears throat> fighting the bad guys argument is a pretty good one. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm struggling here. I got allergies. 
and they're killing me. But I guess, you know, the Allies didn't defeat uh, Hitler with flowers and rainbows. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I guess the reality is that if you're a pacifist and this kind of investing isn't necessarily for you. Yeah, um, that's fine, too. I'll tell you on this topic because this is an interesting question. It comes up. It comes up a lot with defense contractors. A lot of people have opinions about defense contractors. Uh, but you could really apply it to almost any industry. I always told people, like, are you not going to invest in McDonald's because of the way they contribute to America's obesity epidemic? Are you not going to invest in oil companies? And many people don't invest in oil companies mm-hmm. due to oil spills and climate change or whatever. But if you're if you're not going to invest in pharmaceutical companies based on the opioid epidemic, you can pretty much go through any industry. And I don't know that you're really going to find one that's 100% clean, even clean sure. energy industries. So like everything's got you know a little bit of dirt on it. It's just kind of the way it is. And it's up to people to, you know, draw their own lines morally about what they are comfortable and are not comfortable investing in. And that's, that's an individual decision. And that's, that's fine for anybody. Yeah, I think that's a, <clears throat> that's a fair point. You know, if uh, you're a pacifist and this uh, investing is this kind of investing isn't for you, then maybe go take yeah, a hike and thing. catch us on the next video. Yeah, like, we're, we're talking about green energy or something like that. I'll cash in on um, it. You can have fun. You know, I'm doing my thing. You know. So let's we get, let's move on then to actually making money from this conflict. Now that sure. we, we've, got, we've gotten all the, all the pacifists and pessimists out of the way, uh, and I think to do that we kind of need to get a clearer picture uh, as to what's going on and the type of war that's being fought. And I think maybe probably the best place to start uh, is Russia. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe, you know, within this uh, within that category, we can start with the Ukraine counteroffensive and you can kind of give us some details on, on you know, what uh, you know, how effective was that counteroffensive offensive? Um, what does it say about Russia's military uh, capability? And we can go from there. Sure. So it was a big deal. It happened, I guess, about a week ago, maybe a little bit more at this point. But. Russia's basically occupied most of eastern Ukraine. Uh, there are several regions <coughs> over there, uh, stuff like uh, Donetsk, Luhansk, and they had occupied a city, uh, uh, Kharkiv. So Kharkiv uh, was up in like the northeastern part. There's a city to the south of that called Kherson, and those are two major cities that are basically formed kind of the front of where like Russia. They're kind of like the like the vanguard of where Russia had, had gotten in their territorial gains. So. Ukraine basically kind of pulled a head fake. They act like they were going to go for Kherson, but then they cut up and they went for Kharkiv. They encircled it, uh, drove off the Russian forces probably more quickly than I think they even had hoped. Uh, I don't think anyone was really expecting. A lot of like, there are even reports of this like Russian troops just turning and running away before the Ukrainians even got there. And so they kind of just blew through it like butter. And they knocked them, like I said, back past the Dnieper River on that the eastern side. So now there's a question of whether or not they can kind of complete that roundabout motion and uh, make it down to Kherson. And then ultimately the goal would be to liberate Luhansk and Donetsk, which are the republics that Russia claims want to be a part of its country uh, and that they're basically trying to you know, chisel off of, of Ukraine, and that's like part of their main objective of the war, at least what they're settling for. Their initial objective was to take over the whole thing, and that failed immediately. Yep. So now they're trying to settle for just taking these kind of renegade provinces that they've that they've been you know meddling with over the past eight years or so. Uh, it, what it says about the Russian military, I mean, it's what we've seen. It, it's wholly inadequate, and. A lot of Russia's equipment and best equipment at this point has been captured or destroyed. Uh, they're digging into warehouses basically for old 
Soviet equipment, really old tanks and stuff. Like, it's just totally inadequate for basically modern warfare, especially, again, for the kind of weapons that, that Ukraine's been furnished with. And we can talk about that, too. But... I, I heard that Ukraine got more like weapons and ammunition in this counteroffensive than they've received from the UN uh, in the like leading up to that point. Is, do you know if that's true or not? I don't know if that's true. Yeah. Uh, but they they definitely got a lot. I mean, they, it was it was a big score for them and politically. And Russia, they're not even just failing in terms of their their equipment power. They've lost a ton of equipment. And they've lost a ton of people. And so now they're at the point they've been basically going into jails and offering amnesty to prisoners if they go and serve six months in Ukraine. And they're very clear about the deal. They're like, you go, you serve six months, your crimes are forgiven, you get over there, you decide it's not for you, we shoot you on the spot. Like, that's the deal. Sure. Uh, And so they've done that. And then what we saw this week when things escalated now was this partial quote unquote mobilization. I was going to ask ask you about that. What exactly is that? How many troops do you expect? Uh, and, and where is he going to get these troops? Okay. So these are basically kind of like weekend warriors. Uh, like it's almost kind of like, it, like if you've ever served in the Russian military or if you're basically of a certain kind of like age, uh, then you fit into this kind of like uh, reservist uh, category. It's it's almost sort of like the National Guard. It's kind of like a tough parallel, but like it's kind of like a National Guard. But these guys, and it's everybody up to age like 35 is eligible. They say they're only going to draw 300,000 of them out of a potential like 2 million. But there's already signs that they're... So it's like a partial, it's like a partial draft. It's then. like a mini draft. And at, like the, <clears throat> the order that Putin issued... Even though they floated this three hundred thousand person cap, it's not included in the in the in the order that Putin actually issued. And he did open up an actual conscription draft. Like that's on the table for them. Uh, I don't I don't know if they're going to want to go that route. Uh, I don't think they didn't even want to go this route. This is a real act move of, of just desperation. Yeah. Because that, like I said, they they they've lost so much to this point, and it's kind of a sunk cost fallacy at this point. They're just. They just can't accept that this is really failing. They do have a lot of numbers, though, right? Can they potentially win just by like sending a wall of meat? So I don't think so. And and not if not if the the only way that they I think that they can't win. That's that's been off the table for a while. There's no winning. There's no situation here where Russia ends up anywhere near Kiev, or I mean, at best they could maybe continue to occupy those eastern provinces, but it effectively become just a bloody stalemate is, is what is like really the best case scenario for them at this point. Sure. And then they're going to hope that over the course of time that that western support and that western aid dissipates, that we kind of lose, you know, we get tired of, of sending all this money and, yeah. and stuff to, to Ukraine and that we use this political will or that winter rolls in and the energy prices and, you know, they're able to use their kind of energy reserves as, as kind of a bargaining chip and, you know, to, to wither western support for Ukraine. So, like, that's that's kind of the the objective at this point. But no, because they're not going to, it's not going to be successful. Like, because one, like I said, they don't actually have at this point enough weapons for 
the reserves that they're bringing up. Like you can bring them up. I don't know what you're going to put them in if you do, if you've surrendered entire tank columns sure. to Ukraine. Okay, and so that's that's where they're at with it. It's also a matter of like they've been even with the forces that they've have they've had to kind of cobble together units. They're making almost like Frankenstein units because like, oh, well, the remnants of this tank column and then there's this artillery unit here and they've both been, you know, lost half their people. So now we're going to push them together and and make something out of it. So now you're getting troops that were trained for one thing put into a Mm. unit that, you know, they weren't prepared for. And with the people that they're drafting into service now, they lack pretty much any training at all. You know, it takes months, if not, you know, a year or more to learn how to, like, operate a tank or some of the sophisticated weapon. It's probably safe to say that they lack the motivation to fight as well. I mean, I think once you start forcing people to to fight, and I think even already a lot of the people that were in the military were not particularly, like, you have, I, I keep hearing stories kind of about, you know, Russian troops, like, you know, running away, and I don't know how much of that is just, like, you know, Western media. How no, much it was a true. route. They, yeah. they, they ran. I mean, yeah. there's no doubt about it. Like, they ran. Uh, so, it, like I said, it's not going well for them. Uh, at this point, like I said, it's going to be a stalemate for a while. What happens in terms of U.S. aid, I think could – there's probably going to be at least one more aid package. We've sent out right now about $14.5 billion in aid so far. Yeah. Uh, and then – from there, I think they're going to try to squeeze another aid package in before midterms because now one of the fears that's cropping up is that if Republicans are able to win back control of the House and or the Senate, they might not be as keen to support uh, Ukraine in this endeavor. Uh, and so they're not really sure what the what the future viability of that support will be. Okay. So if that, if that doesn't hold out and there is a change in political sentiment, uh, you know, on our side, that probably won't change things much for Europe, who will keep arming them. But we've been by far the biggest supplier and their their biggest benefactor. Uh, so that that would be a, a big blow to them. But I, they've done enough damage at this point that I think they can at least hold their own. Uh, whether or not they were able to, like, they able to just drive Russia the rest of the way out of their country would depend on it. How long this goes on, how much support they have, and how me- how long I mean, how many people Vladimir Putin is really willing to watch die on his end. Like, I mean, how many Russians is he politically capable of sending to their death? Do you think he really cares? I don't. But it's eventually it'll get if, you know, there's a potential that he I mean, this is it for him, that his regime ends. Sure. Like, you know, he's never been closer to to losing it. And he's already kind of like there. Even his allies like China is even kind of wavering a little bit with him. Well, because, what are your what are your thoughts on him kind of being like a rat backed into a corner? Do you think he's going to yeah. he is more likely to do something drastic to I know he made some veiled nuclear threats this week. Yeah. Uh, what, what are your kind of thoughts on the the likelihood of that it's happening? Tough or because so much <clears throat> of like his like you know, he's, he's been threatening nuclear war against the United States in particular for, I mean, more than a decade at this point. Uh, whether or not he actually does it, I don't know. Like, the question becomes, like, is he crazy? Or is he, like, does he get that desperate to try to hold on? I, but I don't think, I don't think him using nuclear weapons, even, like, smaller tactical weapons or however they want to try to, like, phrase it, I don't think that saves him necessarily because it would put Russia as a country in such a a dark place internationally speaking i think yeah. if they were to use nuclear weapons it would alienate even you know their allies like china sure. and iran and the people that are helping would probably have to distance themselves at that point gotcha you'd look like a lunatic you'd i mean you it would be something and it would also be you know an offense grave enough that 
you know, and I don't know that we would send troops, but at that point, okay. there really wouldn't be anything off the table from the West. Right now, there's stuff that we won't send Ukraine. We won't send Ukraine anything that can be used to strike inside Russia. Yeah. Everything that we're sending Ukraine is technically, in a way, defensive in nature, and that its its range is limited to their territory. It's not something they can use to strike out at Moscow or something. So that would be out the window. So speaking at speaking of striking against Russia, uh, could could you comment on kind of the <clears throat> expected annexation of these occupied these recently occupied territories because i think that it kind of becomes this disagreement then of what is ukraine still and what is russia and if ukraine is trying to take back those territories uh what starts happening then yeah so that's a different question uh it's you, from UK, Ukraine's perspective, that's their territory, and it is. And internationally speaking, it is. Internationally, most countries like you know the United States and the West, they don't even recognize you know that Crimea is part of Russia, whereas Russia says this is yeah. this is ours now. That's not you know the case in the eyes of the international community. You know, it's that these are occupied lands, and there's actually a few territories like this around the world. Parts of Georgia, Russia fought a war against uh, Georgia back in something like 2008 and they still have they're still occupying large tracts of that country well that's not really russian territory they're just occupying it and it's the same with ukraine they're they're just occupying crimea they're occupying these eastern uh areas and they're basically you know brought in russian they have kind of like these puppet regimes and you yeah. know it's not it's not a legitimate government it's not anything legitimate so to them they're just trying their best to like foment a claim to, to basically just create some kind of claim that they can point to and ultimately i think in their mind uh, like any kind of propaganda success that they can take away from this war that if they can find if, if they can like make this war long and painful enough for ukraine and for the west that you know we come to the table and that ukraine because right now ukraine's saying we want all of our territory back and you got to go so like yeah. if they stop saying that and they finally kind of throw up their hands and go like fine you can have the eastern portion just to you know because we got to stop this yeah right now that's not likely so I, yeah i mean to me that would seem like a victory for russia if they gain yeah. territory because it's you know the, if they start doing this every couple of years gain a little bit of territory and then sure we're too afraid to push back and they just keep creeping their way forward yeah i mean it would be <clears throat> it, i mean it wouldn't be much of a victory because like it's been so they've been so battered like i mean they the way they didn't even get close to kiev and you're they're supposed to be a superpower right in their mind this is you're supposed yeah. to be one of the most formidable Arm fighting forces on the planet. You're you're out there, t- you know, talking to the United States like you yeah. can take us. You know, like we're not afraid of you. We got nukes. We're going to do all this, and you can't really stop us. And like you couldn't even take Ukraine, man. Like yeah. you couldn't. Like so, it doesn't look great. I mean, that would it would just be kind of like saving face yeah. if they, if they were able to do that. It would be a sacrifice on Ukraine's part. But like it would be it would be at this point, it's really hard for Russia to call anything a victory unless they somehow had some kind of massive resurgence. And but it, it just doesn't seem like that that's going to be the case. Like I said, I don't think they're prepared for that. So you were talking about China earlier. I kind of cut you off a little bit, but uh, you know. I was wondering where do you think they fit into all this? And you also mentioned uh, puppet governments. Mm -hmm. Is Russia becoming – is a potential – is there a potential that Russia is becoming a puppet government of China? That's a good question. Uh, And I don't think it's quite to that extent yet. I think it's more of a like the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation with these two. That's the best way to understand the Russia-China relationship. China is nothing if not practical, okay? And they recognize the value in having Russia be a problem 
you know, over in Europe and in the Black Sea. I mean, because you look, we have to devote resources there. If Russia were playing nice and folded in and became a part of Europe, then we wouldn't need all these troops in Germany. We could probably start winding down a little bit. Already with the way the Soviet Union collapsed and the way Russia had had behaved for the subsequent decades from, you know, 1991 to 2001, you know, up until they started to actually invade their neighbors, uh, NATO kind of lost its purpose. It, it was kind of like, well, with the Soviet Union gone, what are we really defending against? Sure. Like, what's what's the use? What's the utility of this alliance truly? Uh, and you know, like Donald, that's why Donald Trump always kind of famously asks, like, why are we, you know, spending all this money to defend these European countries or whatever? But this is why, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, and so what he did was he kind of gave, he renewed the kind of clarity and, and purpose of of NATO and that alliance. But as long as he's meddling over there like that then that's, you know, fewer resources and less attention that, you know, countries like the United States in particular can devote to the Pacific and contain China. It's, it's a good way to divide our forces. So to, to them, I think Putin is very useful. But they just had a meeting. Uh, they just had, I forget exactly where it was, but Xi Jinping just met with Putin. And yep. like, to, like, I think the reports were, you know, you don't know everything that goes on, but I think they were true. I think, I think there's concern about Russia's lack of progress, about the damage it's doing to the global economy, the damage is, it's doing just across the board. Is China expressing those concerns to Russia? Is that the understanding? Or? I'd imagine they are. Yep. Yeah, I think they. I think they have legitimate concerns, and they're not going to come out publicly. And you know, they've they've come out and said that you know we have this amazing, unbreakable friendship, and we are partners in all things. Yep, always, sure. you know, that's not true, obviously. But they're going to say that that's going to be the the public front. But it, it seems pretty obvious, you know, behind closed doors that, you know, this isn't working and it's not doing any good for anybody. It's just kind of created an untenable situation. Yeah. That, that's not just not just flat out not helpful to anybody. How do you think that this impacts China's, uh, you know, I guess, ambitions to take Taiwan? Are they looking at this and trying to learn from the mistakes and they're going to go ahead with it anyway in a couple of years? Or do you think that this is kind of a real cautionary tale for them and they're saying, eh, you know what, maybe we should not mess with this Western alliance because if, you know, it, it could be the downfall of us. I think they've probably learned a few things from this. I think it's probably been pretty illuminating for China. Uh, I think, you know, they'll take, the, I think they're going to take, you know, some standard lessons away from it. Like, first off, like, don't underestimate your enemy because that was the thing. Russia thought, you know, we're just going to roll over the Ukrainian. They thought that Zelensky was a coward. He wasn't. They thought that the Ukrainian army uh, wasn't going to be well-trained. It was. They thought that they wouldn't, you know, have the, like, strategic acumen to defend themselves. They did. Like, they thought the West wouldn't go so far to defend them they did. So they were wrong the whole way about, you know, the response from Ukraine and about the international response. There was a lot of really bad intel and bad assumptions made that led Russia into this predicament. And I think China's going to be real careful not to repeat those. Uh, I think they're also going to take kind of lessons learned about the way wars are fought. Uh, because, and it's, it's so weird, so different because Taiwan being an island, you know, with Russia, they can just they could just drive armor columns in. Uh, with China, at some point, you're going to have to land on the shores of Taiwan. So, like, you know, it, when once you get there, 
it's 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 you realize how hard it is to occupy and hold a territory that doesn't want you there. Uh, you know, a population that doesn't want you there. That can be extremely difficult. And I, you know, I I don't know. I think at some point, you know, I in China, I think for them, like the best case scenario would be some kind of political settlement, either like by you know turning that government in some way, perhaps by placing like fit, like actual like diplomatic agents in there and trying to do it like Russia has tried to do, which ferment like a grassroots rebellion and try to like make like a fake. Yeah. Uh, well, what is the sentiment within Taiwan? Is there do you, do you know anything about that? Like, are there kind of like people in Taiwan that are China loyalists or is, is it for the most part? Everyone. I can't really. Yeah, I couldn't really speculate too much about that. Uh, you know, there, there's probably some people that you know don't, might, might not even hate the idea. Or they don't care. It doesn't affect their daily lives. Yeah. But I think most people, if you're living in an independent country that has its own democracy and its own representatives, <laughs> why would you want a communist country to take you over? Yeah, you know, sure. it seems kind of counterintuitive. You know, some people do yearn for that kind of strongman rule. Like there's a certain, there's obviously an appeal. You look at the way politics have gone. There's obviously an appeal at like in a very base nature for a lot of people for a strongman for you know kind of autocratic rule uh but i don't think it's i don't think it's very great in taiwan i think they just as soon stay independent fair enough uh you alluded earlier to kind of you know the way that war is fought or what the this kind of like a new kind of war Mm -hmm. uh what kind of weapons are we seeing being used uh in ukraine and then which weapons do you think are going to become more prominent in the future? Okay, yeah. So this that was what I was going to mention too. It's uh, part of the the China thing is like, I don't think they're going to want to face off against traditional U.S. firepower. This is this has really been the thing, and this is what really really crushed Russia. Uh, there have been we've been sending them like numerous types of missiles uh, that have been very effective. So namely stingers. Uh, and javelins, first off. Stingers are anti-aircraft uh, uh, rockets you can shoot from, like, a shoulder launcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they're kind of, like, heat-seeking. They can use, like, an, an image uh, infrared profile of something, like, a, the heat coming off a plane's engine. It's like a heat-seeking bazooka kind of. Yeah, sort you know. of. And so you can, you can do that. Javelins are uh, really advanced anti-tank weapons. So uh, what they do is they fire off, and they have kind of like these two preliminary explosives that go in and they peel out a hole and then a third explosive punches through. So that way it it basically opens up the outer armor of a tank and then the third actually projectile go fires into that hole. Wow, that's crazy. I thought it was one missile. That's insane. It actually has like three component missiles. It's it's pretty advanced. And, you know, they're pretty easy to operate and they're easy to carry. So like that's that very early on in Ukraine, you know, you could fire one of those and then just take off and go, go, go somewhere else and hide and reload or whatever. Those posed just those things alone uh, posed a huge uh, challenge for for Russia, especially because, like I said, a lot of their tanks, a lot of their armors, didn't even actually have that outer layer. Um, they 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 weren't super reinforced. They didn't have really great tanks. They, 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 their hardware is not as advanced as we feared it might be, and sure. as they kind of led the world to believe and wanted everyone to to believe. Uh, so there's that. And then most recently, we sent them the uh, high mobility artillery rocket systems, HIMARS. 
And high Mars are great because they have like a longer range. I forget exactly how far it is, but it's it's a significant range. And it's significant enough that it's a greater range than the Russian artillery. So they can stay out of range of Russian artillery and then blow it up. Because that was basically the, the type of warfare that Russia retreated into when things started going poorly. They basically reset the line back in the eastern part of Ukraine. And then they started bombarding cities with artillery and just pounding everything into dust and, you know, trying to basically march in on that. It was just all like artillery warfare. Well, you start blowing up their artillery with long-range rockets, and that became a huge problem for them. Uh, those things have all been uh, extremely successful, and they've gotten a lot of attention on the international stage. Especially like Javelins. Javelins are co-made. They're made by Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. Uh, and yeah, I think Lockheed Martin's the principal. But... Uh, the United Kingdom ordered $300 million worth of javelins. Even Brazil just ordered uh, $75 million, even though they don't really have a need for it. Sure. Like, <laughs> I yeah. think for that to happen, the State Department has to sign off on it. And the State Department really asked Brazil, like, what are these for? But ultimately, they didn't stand in the way of that sale. Uh, Stingers, also made by Raytheon. Uh, uh, I don't know who the HIMARS are made by. But those those have been successful, so that's that's good stuff. Uh, future warfare too. Actually, on the subject of Raytheon, they just completed a test because we talked about last time I was on. We talked about hypersonic missiles and about uh, you know the boost glide, about how they shoot up into the atmosphere and they go on this kind of wild trajectory yep. and it's unpredictable. Then they fire down on their target. Well, right now the military, the Pentagon, is trying to come up with an interceptor that picks those hypersonic missiles off in their glide phase. And that's called the, uh, uh, what is it called? The glide phase interceptor. So they gave, they initially talked to Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and Raytheon about it. They just eliminated Lockheed Martin. And so then they gave $41 million each to Raytheon and to Northrop Grumman to further develop an interceptor for those hypersonic missiles. Uh, that is, they're now working on a prototype for that, basically. Gotcha. So I take it that thing just has to be like extremely fast to get to the to the glide phase and before. Yeah, targeting. It, yeah. it would have to be very accurate. And like I said, you know, with uh, some of the missiles we talked about before, uh, you know, honing in and being like kind of like heat seeking, the the hypersonics move so quickly and you know so kind of erratically. It would be hard even with like any kind of like heat seeking technology to hit them. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that would be it, it's difficult. So it's gonna take a, a precise amount of targeting and a tremendous amount of velocity in order to meet those. And also again, you're talking about shooting into really the outer reaches of the Earth's atmosphere. Yeah. Up into the low Earth orbit. So I mean they're gonna have to go pretty far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about uh drones? Oh, drones. So those are obviously super effective uh, and very much a part of things. Like we're kind of uh, going to approach a point where, like, basically robots do our fighting for us. Yeah. Like that's kind of where it's where it's going. Like we're not there yet, and I think that's kind of what we're seeing. And I, I think, it, I mean, kind of getting back to the crux of this discussion about you know lessons from the China and what how. I don't think they're going to want to fight a traditional war with Taiwan. I don't think they're going to want it to come down to missiles and armor and all this stuff because I think they understand in that capacity they lose. 
uh, that there's there's not going to be any catching up to the United States in that. And that's why you've seen this focus from them in particular on hypersonic missiles and stuff that can neutralize traditional American power like aircraft carriers. That it's going to be stuff like cyber warfare, satellite warfare. Uh, you know, I, I, I once uh, saw a general speak and his main thing was he was like, the ultimate goal is to be able to infiltrate the enemy's uh, command computers, basically, take control of them and do it without the enemy knowing. So portraying, like, have, have like, basically the enemy think that everything's going exactly according to plan based on what they're seeing from their computers, yep. but secretly be in control of them and destroy their stuff without anybody even knowing. Yeah. Like, that's, to them, that's, like, the dream. It's like that's that's what we want is to to be able to kind of have that kind of access. And I think that's that's what China would want, too. Yeah. Uh, So in terms of like cyber warfare, are there any uh, like key investments that that you see? Cyber warfare. Um, I mean, I feel like that's kind of what you're referring to right there. Yeah. Because if Um, like you mentioned, uh, I know that like is it Palantir? Well, Palantir does uh, AI kind of they they kind of analyze information Mm. that like a company like Darktrace. Maybe. But a lot of the, the companies that do uh, the cyber warfare, they're gonna, they're also more traditional contractors. Like, again, you would be actually looking at companies like Raytheon and General Dynamics in particular, I think. There, there's a whole host of, of defense contractors racing to be the uh, Pentagon's cloud computing supplier, sure. basically, and service provider. And to, to kind of run, because that's, that's the other thing the military is really, really keen on. It's connecting everything in a massive cloud so that your, your jets and your artillery on the ground, the computers talk to each other and share information with each other, uh, and they do it on their own. And, and that is like AI and it kind of does its own thinking and they, that improves targeting and they help each other and they kind of assist each other in that way. So there's all, all, the, all the standard defense contractors are working on, on that stuff. So, so you've, you've mentioned Raytheon, you've mentioned Lock, Lockheed. Yes. Uh, is your strategy uh, in investing in aerospace and defense kind of just like hitting all of the major contractors or are you selecting a, a couple? That's a good place to start. Yeah. Um, and then there are still a few smaller ones. It can be difficult in the industry because there's so much consolidation. Yeah. But there are smaller companies like Kratos is always a favorite of mine. They make drones. They also make uh, – their drones are really cool because they're what they call loyal wingmen. So if you're flying like an F-35, you have a companion aircraft that mm. flies with you that is 100 percent unmanned. So are they are they part of like the, the NGAD, the next generation uh, like fighters yes, that they're, that they're the making? Yes, the fifth generation. Yeah, I, that's the idea. I, I find that fascinating. I, I think – I mean you could correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I've seen, they're basically trying to create like a human-flown – fighter that has like five drones that are around right, it and exactly, supporting small it. planes because they can go in and they can do basically kind of pave the way for the fighter jet to come in behind because if you're flying into hostile territory one of the key things is you might not necessarily know where the enemy's any aircraft uh, batteries are 
you don't know where those missile launchers are until they start shooting at you. Yeah. But they shoot at the drones and they reveal their position. And then you just lose the drone, which only cost maybe $100 million, as opposed to the fighter jet, sure. which cost you tens of billions of dollars. Yeah, it's like a moving force field. Yeah, exactly. So you, they can go out and they can you know, help with the targeting and they can help with target acquisition and they can even deploy munitions themselves. Yeah, that's that's a huge part. It's a force multiplier effect. Yeah, I, that's all really interesting. Uh, I think we're going to wrap it up. Uh, sure. Unless is is there anything you want to plug before we before we go? Um. Uh, well, my hypersonic report's still out, so I'd encourage everyone to check that out because the hypersonic stuff is pretty big. There's a lot of money. It's going to be about fifteen billion dollars over just the next two years, uh, and then. I don't know. Which publication is that in? Is that uh, that's Wall Street's Proven Ground? Okay, cool. Uh, and I, I've even started to talk about it a little bit in Secret Stock Files too, so it'll it'll be in there. Uh, but that's we got uh, we got drone plays and some other like part suppliers and technology suppliers specifically. Like if, if you were looking for smaller companies, those would be in Secret Stock Files. That's where I kind of put the the smaller companies. Uh, the bigger companies, as of right now, are are in Wall Street's proven ground. That's where you'll find like Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, if you're just in for the for the base, which isn't a bad place to be right now, uh, because defense contractors tend to withstand re- recessions pretty well. The government money keeps on flowing for them, uh, regardless of what the economy does. Do you get uh, decent dividends from any of those? You do. Yeah. Nice. The, I mean, I'd say probably about two, three percent, maybe yep. a little bit more at this point, because uh, you know some some things have been beaten down. A lot of them, like Raytheon in particular, I think Raytheon's a great investment right now because they've had some supply chain issues, uh, and like particularly with uh, their uh, commercial aviation businesses, uh, Pratt and Whitney and Collins Aerospace, the, they've had some supply shortages for things like en- engine castings. Uh, and so they're behind on deliveries, but they anticipate making up those deliveries by the end of the year, if not early, early 2023. Uh, and then once that happens, all these plane companies like Boeing and Airbus, which are also behind on production because they have not been able to get the supplies they need, are going to start ramping up their production again. And that's going to increase demand for the commercial uh, aerospace suppliers, as well as you get this huge rush of defense funding that we're seeing now in the United States and abroad. That is, I mean, like I said, the demand for Raytheon products, it's it, is I that mean, your favorite defense stock? You're, you're always mentioning Raytheon. Um, uh, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, yeah, they like, seem to be. If the... I had a favorite, yeah, those those two probably. They do. They tend to do the most and the most important stuff. I feel like, but I also I wouldn't you know discount Northrop Grumman. But those are kind of my big three. Uh, but those 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 are the guys. And I think Raytheon was about like eighty five bucks. I think by in about a year it could be up by like one hundred fifty. So you know depending on how things go, I mean at least over a hundred. So it would, it would it's in a, it's at a low point, and I I think that's just in a really good spot right now. All right. Well, Jason, appreciate you coming on, and yep. uh, I would like to uh, kind of you know meet up uh, in a couple of weeks maybe, and sure. uh, kind of see how this whole situation is going. Yeah, love it. All right, everybody else, thanks for uh, watching and like, subscribe, and like this stuff.